Good morning, friends. I'm Pastor Brandon, and I invite you to keep your Bibles open to uh, Jonah chapter 3 this morning. And uh, to start with, I'd like you to imagine a world without second chances. Everything is just one strike and you're out. You show up for work late, you say the wrong thing, you miss a deadline, you explode in anger, you fudge the truth, and it's just simply game over. That's it. No more lives. Uh, no chance to redeem yourself or try again. No chance even to apologize. You are now identified by your worst behavior. It's actually not that hard to imagine that because that's kind of how the, the cancel culture that we live with today works, right? You say the wrong thing or think the wrong thing or simply be associated with someone who says the wrong thing or thinks the wrong thing. And, and you must, you and your credibility and influence must be targeted and eliminated with extreme prejudice. Swift justice, no mercy. That is not a particularly attractive world to live in, is it? Especially when there's not a blessed one of us who always gets it right the first time. Right? None of us do. We need second chances, and third, and fourth, and so on. If society should mark iniquities, who indeed could stand? And yet, however, if we're honest, that, that world without second chances, that's actually the world we deserve. Justice matters. Wrongs must be righted. You know, it's an equal and perhaps, I don't know, worse nightmare to think about living in a world where sin is never dealt with, where, where wrongs are never addressed, no recourse for when you are wronged or harmed. So justice matters. Wrongs must be punished. And if we're honest, that's what we actually deserve. And so if justice is what we deserve and yet none of us can stand before it, how much more wonderful is it to live in a world where mercy is real? Right? Where there's a possibility for forgiveness, where second chances are a thing. And, and that world is only made possible by a God who's able to uphold and exalt both justice and mercy at the same time, ultimately through the cross. That is, in fact, by God's grace, the world we live in, where both justice and mercy are real. And that's the world we find in the book before us in Jonah. So if you're just joining us, we're about halfway through this wonderfully iconic but not always well understood book of the Old Testament. Uh, and at the beginning of chapter 3 here, Jonah, the main character uh, the, the, for whom the book is named, he stands with a remarkable second chance before him. In fact, if you have kind of been following along in the book, you'll, you'll recognize or verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 3 will sound awful familiar because they parallel so closely the first two verses of chapter 1. There, chapter 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and call against it, for their evil has come up before me. And then you get to chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah is being given a second chance. But why does he need a second chance? Well, if you've been with us or if you're otherwise familiar with this story, you'll remember that Jonah refused to obey God the first time he was given this job, the first commission he received from the Lord. Instead of obeying, he attempted to run from the presence of the Lord. He hired a ship out of Joppa to try and sail to Tarshish to get away from God as as much as he could. And of course, God intervened. He intercepted him. In his loving discipline, he, he stepped in to reclaim his prophet, uh, which involved you know, the prophet uh, being hurled into the ocean and almost drowning until the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him and save him. And last week, we looked at Jonah's reaction to that salvation of God, how he kind of sang or wrote or whatever this psalm of praise that came from within the belly of that fish where he finally came to realize that salvation does not belong to Jonah. It's not up to him to decide who gets to hear God's message. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and no sin and no situation is going to stop his plan from being accomplished. So if the Lord wants to send a prophet to Nineveh, to Nineveh a prophet will go. And so now Jonah stands once again right where he started. He's received God's commission again, calling him to Nineveh. And so the question is, what will he do with that? What will he do with the second chance that he's received from God? You know, part of reading a biblical narrative like the story of Jonah is allowing yourself to kind of get caught into the suspense of the story. You know, a narrative like this communicates its message to us through the story that it tells. And, and so, you know, drawing us into the characters, pulling us along uh, with, the, with the problem and the rising action and the, the, the surprise and the climax and all of that. And so to hear the story this morning, uh, it helps to pretend for a moment like you don't know what's coming next. Like, allow yourself to kind of get caught into that narrative tension as it builds, into the surprise of the turns that we see. You know, what will Jonah do with his second chance? And what will Nineveh do with what they hear? What will God do with Nineveh? And of course, what will you do with the mercy that God has for you? Those are the questions We want the story to help us answer. And so we'll start first with what will Jonah do? What will he actually do this time? Again, he's received this second call. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it. The message I will tell you. And and so we see God's mission to Nineveh, it still stands. Despite Jonah's attempt to uh, circumvent it, it still stands because Nineveh's evil must still be dealt with. That was the occasion of his first call. Call out against them, for their evil has come up before me. We can safely assume that's the occasion for this renewed call to Nineveh. God is sending him with a message of judgment. 
And so he sends Jonah once again. But what will Jonah do? Well, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. If you compare that to verse 3 in chapter 1, that is such a dramatic difference. Instead of trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah actually obeys God this time. Which makes us ask why. Like, that's, a, that's such a remarkable contrast. It invites us to ask, what in the world happened between chapter 1 and chapter 3 that Jonah, that the same commission that caused him to run away the first time, he now obeys the second time? And if you were here last week, you know the answer. Chapter 2, that's what happened. He experienced God's mercy. He experienced God's mercy, and it is God's mercy that moves his people to service. It's God's mercy that moves his people to service. It was, it was being brought to the end of himself, to the very depths of the ocean, facing the death that he actually deserved for his rebellion, and then being rescued from those depths despite his sin, despite his stubborn disobedience, it's that experience of mercy that now prepares Jonah to obey the Lord's call. Mercy has changed him. Mercy has changed him. He doesn't obey in order to get out of a sticky situation. He obeys because the Lord, in his mercy, has already delivered him from the stickiest of situations. Mercy moves God's people to service. So because God has done everything for me, I therefore will joyfully do whatever he asks of me. That's how God's mercy moves us. Even if it's hard, even if, it's, if, it's, even if I don't like it, even if it results in suffering, because God is who he is, we live in a world where mercy is real, where second chances are available, and those second chances move us to respond to God with joyful obedience and service. And, and the same thing is true for servants of Christ today. When you think of the Apostle Paul's ministry, you know, to take an example from the New Testament, I mean, the Apostle Paul's ministry, he was called to the ends of the earth uh, in his day, uh, the, everywhere, and pretty much everywhere he went, he was met with suffering and hardship. Here's how he describes his ministry and, how, and what he does with it in 2 Corinthians 4.1. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. How was Paul able to persevere in God's call? It's because he knew his ministry was a result of God's mercy. It was a result of God's mercy. He had been to the depths, and his sin had been exposed. And there on that road to Damascus, God met him not with judgment, but with mercy. A mercy that was designed to overflow in serving God and others. As he reflects on his call later in, in 1 Timothy, get, getting closer to the end of his life, Paul writes, 
First Timothy 1, 15 to 16, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's mercy moves his people to service. And so Jonah goes. Having been changed by the mercy of God, he obeys the call this time around and goes to Nineveh, which the author describes here as an exceedingly great city, or more literally, a, a great city to God which might refer to its importance to God in his plans or might be just a way of saying it was celestial in size. It's so big it took three days to uh, explore it. But Jonah goes. He goes to Nineveh. But what will Nineveh do with the message that they hear? That's the second question. What will Nineveh do? And we finally learn the precise message God sends Jonah to to preach when we get to verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is a message of judgment. So the prophet, whose, whose ministry is fueled by the mercy of God, obeys God to go and pronounce a message of justice for Nineveh. Because again, justice matters. Justice matters too. Just as living in a world with no second chances would be a complete nightmare, so is living in a world where wrongs are never punished or dealt with. Justice matters. And the ancient nation of Assyria, whose capital would soon be Nineveh, they had a lot of red in their ledger. They, their violence, their brutality, their wickedness and evil, it was both an offense to God and his holiness, and it was an attack on people made in God's image. And it was expansive. God can't just sit back and not do something about that. And so the prophet, whose service is fueled by mercy, he shows up in a foreign city filled with people who neither know or or believe or worship Israel's God uh, to declare a message of judgment from Israel's God. What will Nineveh do with that? I mean, just imagine for a moment someone walking in here uh, this morning with a message from Buddha that God is going to shut down Stonebridge in two weeks. What would you do with that, right? Most of us would probably just turn our head in confusion and maybe say nothing and, you know, some of us might laugh. Some of us might get angry. None of us are really going to be worried about being shut down in two weeks, though, because we don't worship Buddha and we don't believe he's even real. So that's just not really, a, you know, a thing. So, you know, and if someone continued to come in day after day saying that, we would politely but firmly escort them out and hopefully find a quiet place to sit down and talk about Jesus. But we're not going to be worried about that message. So, so what, what does Nineveh do? Here, one might expect a similar dismissive reaction, uh, or if we're honest, one might expect a far more violent reaction when Jonah shows up and begins preaching uh, his message of God's judgment. Uh, 
These people don't worship. They don't know the Lord. They don't worship the Lord. Who cares what Israel's God thinks about us? And how dare you walk into our city saying it's going to be overturned? At best, Jonah should expect to be ignored. At worst, he should expect to be arrested, uh, beaten, or killed. So what does Nineveh do? Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, that is completely unexpected. They believed God. They actually took God at His word, which doesn't necessarily mean they became followers of Yahweh, but they took this message seriously, that this God, whoever he is, he's going to bring judgment. And then they responded with humility and repentance. Like they, they, they began fasting and, and wearing sackcloth, which is kind of this, you know, scratchy burlap type thing, right? And, and, and that was a sign of humility and repentance in the ancient world. And so hearing the prophet of God call out against them moves them to call out for a fast of repentance. It's not the reaction we would expect. But that's just the commoners, right? That's just the townspeople. Surely when the word reaches the governing officials, those who actually have some power, we're going to see something different. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. It's the same humble response, which is entirely remarkable. I mean, imagine a a foreign king who doesn't know Yahweh, doesn't follow Israel's God, and he gets up from his throne, which is this place of power, and instead takes a posture of humility and contrition, removes his royal robes, puts on the sackcloth, sits in ashes. Absolutely incredible. And more than just doing that himself, he issues a decree that everybody else in the city who's not already doing it must do likewise. Even the livestock, which is a little weird. I don't know what to do with that. But that's, that's what he calls them to do. Verse 7. And, and, and more than just asking them to do likewise, he calls them to pray and he calls them to repent. So verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So as the prophet calls out against the city, the people call out for a fast, and the king tells everyone to call out mightily to God for mercy. Fasting, prayer, repentance. I mean, this is a very successful ministry, right? How many of Israel's prophets got this kind of reaction among God's own covenant people during their job? This is pretty remarkable. 
And, and so why do they do it? Why does Nineveh respond the way that they do? I mean, was there something really compelling about Jonah's message or did it have something to do with being inside the fish? Or, you know, readers, readers come up with all sorts of different theories and all of them are speculation. We're not really told. The closest thing and the only real reason we see in the story itself shows up in verse 9. The hope of mercy. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And so like the, the sailors in chapter 1 who saw their doom and called out to God that they might not perish, so the king of Nineveh calls on the people to do the same. They are moved to repentance by the hope of mercy. And so just as God's mercy moves his people to service, so also it moves us to repentance, to turn away from our sin. So we deserve justice, right? Our sins have to be dealt with. But what we need is mercy, lest we be destroyed by our sin. And and when we taste that mercy and experience it, when we, when we taste the forgiveness of sins, or when we realize our need for mercy, when we realize uh, how great our, our sins are, it moves us, that realization, that taste, that moves us to take our sins seriously. Like, I can't just pretend like this isn't wrong anymore. That, that, that mercy moves us to take our sins seriously, to recognize it for the offense and the evil that it is, to mourn over it, this was really bad, and to turn away from it, to want nothing to do with it anymore. And to recognize that, that mercy is, is not an excuse to keep doing the wrong that I enjoy doing anyway. Like so often, that's kind of the category we can, if we're not careful, we slip mercy into this, well, God's going to forgive it, so I'm just going to keep doing it. That's not what mercy is designed to produce. You know, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Or as he says again in Romans 2, 4, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's mercy moves us to repentance. Even ancient Nineveh was moved to repentance, both by their experience of mercy and their hope for mercy. So even though, even though Jonah's message was strictly one of judgment, that warning itself was both an act of mercy and an invitation to mercy. It was an act of mercy because God did not deserve, or God, Nineveh did not deserve. God had, was not obligated to give them any sort of heads up for the judgment that was coming. He didn't have to tell them what was coming. He certainly didn't have to send one of his prophets to a foreign nation that doesn't worship him and warn them. So the very fact that he's giving them a warning is an act of mercy and, and also an invitation to mercy. Because why do you warn someone unless you're holding out hope that they might change? And that mercy had its effect. 
His mercy moved them to repentance, far beyond expectation. Which brings us then to the next question. If, if, if Nineveh took God's word seriously and stopped their wicked ways, what will God do with them now? What will God do? Will God give Nineveh a second chance? Or are they too far gone? I mean, yes, he gave, he gave Jonah a second chance. You know, Jonah's one of his prophets, right? He's, he's one of his covenant people. Nineveh is a pagan nation and one of the most violent enemies in history to God's people. So how far does God's mercy actually reach? And if it reaches that far, what about justice? Well, verse 10, perhaps the most surprising verse in the book so far. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The God who sent his prophet to announce judgment extends mercy in its place. That's amazing. And don't let your familiarity with the book of Jonah and what happens allow you to miss how utterly remarkable that is. That God would respond with that kind of mercy to those kind of people, right? I mean, it's almost unsettling when you consider the scale of the evil and, and violence that Nineveh is guilty of. I mean, it's not quite like pardoning Hitler or Stalin, but, but maybe like Saddam Hussein or the Taliban. Like, they were bad news. And, and God extends mercy. How, how can mercy go that far, right? How is that possible? What about justice? What about justice? Is mercy pretending like justice no longer matters? Well, mercy isn't really mercy without a commitment to justice. I mean, mercy without justice, justice that's, that's anarchy and chaos. That's anything goes. Mercy is only meaningful and transformative against the backdrop of a clear system of right and wrong, moral and immoral, holy and profane. And so for God to show mercy here, that means he must be dealing justice somewhere. It, it just can't disappear entirely. And so there are only two things that make mercy possible in a fallen, unjust world. Either the cross of Jesus or final judgment. That's the only way we can have a world where both mercy and justice are real. Our sin will be dealt with. It will be. The question is, who will bear it? Will it be us in final judgment when we stand before the Lord in the end and give an account? Or is it Christ who took the full weight of God's holy anger against all of our sin, all of our wickedness? He took it on himself on the cross. He bore hell in our place, offering his righteous life for our unrighteous lives. 
If it's me, if I'm the one who will bear my sin and I don't have Christ, then mercy is really just delayed punishment. Like, which is more than I deserve, but I will be brought to account. But if I have Christ, if I am trusting him as my king, my savior, the one who has done everything necessary to deal with my sin and bring me to God through his own righteous life, offering that, meeting God's requirement of justice, both through his life and his sacrificial death, if I have Christ, then mercy is freedom. It's forgiveness. It is new life. Mercy is not a delay in judgment. It is a canceling of wrongs. The Lord no longer holds them against me because they have been paid in full by my Savior. That's mercy. And, and, and the real marvel of mercy is that God has so orchestrated his world that both mercy and justice are real, that we live in a world where sin is dealt with and sin can be forgiven. Sin is dealt with and forgiveness is possible and, and God has done that by exalting both his justice and his mercy and bringing them together at the cross. And so God's mercy, whether for Jonah or for Nineveh, or for us, is either a matter of delayed punishment, waiting for final judgment, or canceled punishment, having been dealt with completely through the cross. Both are more than we deserve, but only one mercy lasts forever. Only the mercy of the cross and so for ancient Nineveh as a whole, as, a, as an entity, their mercy, as you keep reading through the scriptures, was ultimately a matter of delayed punishment. And we can't speak for that precise generation who heard Jonah's preaching, uh, but we know that Assyria, uh, of which Nineveh would become the capital, we know if we keep reading the biblical story, they get way worse than they are now. I mean, they're responsible for the downfall of the northern kingdom of Israel, and, and if you keep reading in the Minor Prophets, you get just two books later, you get to the book of Nahum, and you read all about their coming judgment in electrifying detail. Now, that future sin and future judgment should not water down their example of repentance in this story. This generation repented. And, and, and that is a remarkable example. Neither should it water down the marvel of God's mercy toward them. But that's what Nineveh did, and that's what God did with Nineveh. The last question this morning, though, is what will you do? What will you do with the mercy that God has for you? And perhaps, you know, some of us here haven't experienced that mercy of God firsthand. We don't know Christ yet. We don't know what it's like to have our, our sins canceled and forgiven and buried in the bottom of the sea. And, and so we don't know what to do with it. But if, if you're here and you've been listening, then you've at least had a taste of that mercy in both the warning of judgment and the hope of the cross. What will you do with that? What will you do with that? 
Will you acknowledge the seriousness of sin that God must deal with it and the incredible, absolutely uh, amazing hope that we have that there is a refuge from that in Jesus? Will the mercy of God move you to repentance and faith? Or for those among us who have experienced God's mercy, who have trusted Christ as our King and Savior, and yet sometimes we find ourselves wandering a little bit or or, or even stuck in unrepentant sin, using mercy as an excuse to keep doing what we want to do even though we know it's wrong, will God's mercy move you to repentance? You know, it's interesting that when Jesus retells the story of Jonah in Matthew 12, the people of Nineveh stand as both a model and an indictment for the people Jesus is preaching to, which is mostly the Pharisees in that conversation. They've been trying, you know, they've been rejecting Jesus and trying every way they can to try and discredit Jesus. Well, he says to them, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, if Nineveh repented at Jonah's message of judgment, what will we do with Jesus' message of mercy? Will God's mercy move us to repentance? And I encourage you this week, ask yourself that question. In your time with the Lord, in your prayer, whenever whenever it is you slow down and and spend time with the Lord, ask yourself, ask Him, Lord, is there any place in my life where I'm exploiting your grace, where I'm using your mercy as as a cover for my own sin? And if so, Lord, show me. Show me and and and. Help me to confess it, to own it, to repudiate it. And, and by your grace and by your, the wisdom of your word and the power of your spirit and the help of your people, help me turn away from that and walk in joyful obedience instead. Ask God to work in your heart that his mercy might move us to repentance. And then second, Will God's mercy move us to service? Will God's mercy move you to service? We're not done with the story of Jonah. We've got one more chapter. And as we're going to see next week, uh, Jonah's transformation was less than thorough. So he's got more story to be told. But what we've seen so far in this chapter is that his experience of mercy changed him and moved him to obey and serve the Lord. And so if you have experienced the grace of God and the mercy of Christ in your life, if you know what it's like to, to be brought to, uh, brought to a place where, where you see your sin for what it is and all its ugliness, and then to hear Christ say, I want you, I forgive you, you're mine, I've already dealt with that, come, follow me, and you've experienced that mercy, will that move you to then serve the Lord in sharing his mercy with others. You know, as strange as Jonah's commission to Nineveh was in his day, there's an echo of it. There's an echo within it of God's promise to Abraham. 
That, that ever since those early chapters, God has always had in mind a people from all nations. And that echo we hear in Jonah comes to its full volume when you get to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus sends his disciples saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so that means that we too have a commission from God. Not just those of us who do this for a living, everyone in the church has a commission from God. We are, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. And so does the mercy we have received, does that move us? Does that move us to serve God in making Christ known? Is it so good that we can't help but share it? And, and, and that's something I encourage you. Ask the Lord this week as you reflect on Jonah, Lord, who are you sending me to? You know, part of the answer to that is the fact that you already live in a city. Like Jonah had to go up and, and, and go somewhere else. We know at least part of the answer is he's sending us to the place where we already are. So what does it look like, Lord? How do you want me to make you known? Is there someone you want me to share with? Is there someone you want me to love and serve and lay my life down for? even if it's hard or scary or results in suffering. It can be really hard, and it can be really scary. But listen again to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This isn't about us. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. His mercy moves us to repentance. It moves us to service. God's mercy is meant to change us. And so may that be true of us individually as a congregation, that, that the mercy of God would do its work in drawing us away from sin and closer to our Lord in his service. May he do it for his glory, for the good of our city, through the gospel of his son. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess our utter need for your mercy. And Lord, what an incredible, marvelous thing it is that your mercy would meet us in our sin. Lord, many of us who've either grown up knowing of the Lord or about the Lord, the idea of your mercy, it seems common. It seems every day. It seems like it's something we're entitled to. But Lord, we know that's not the case. Your mercy meets us despite our sin, and yet you choose not to withhold it. What an incredible grace that is. And may your grace do its work in us. May we learn from Nineveh's example, 
and not squander the grace of God, but turn in hope to Christ. And as a people experiencing your mercy, may we be faithful to serve you. In Jesus' name.